Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we have been uh, working our way through a series this Easter tide, um, continuing to broadcast to you uh, from three different undisclosed locations, recording remotely together during the days of coronavirus. Um, but we've been working through a series looking at practicing justice, not just reading Bible passages that say, yes, justice is a good thing, but looking at actual areas of our lives, of our community, of our society, and asking what does our call to do justice look like here? So where where are we going to go today, Erica? Well, if you joined us last week, you know, at the end of the episode, we kind of gave you a bit of a spoiler alert for this week's episode. And we are going to try in the next 25 minutes, half hour to fix all the problems with racial justice. (laughs) (laughs) And then when we're done and we can just, you know, turn everything off of the world is going to be fine. Um, No, but seriously, we're, we're going to, we're going to open up a whole bunch of cans of worms when it comes to racial justice and maybe some talking points um, that you might want to continue with those that you are um, in isolation with. Um, Maybe some things that you can take to your church when we're back and meeting again, uh, whatever that day might be. Uh, But we want to try to tackle this idea of what it means um, to help people of other races, uh, because they're usually the ones, you know, they're always the ones that are being attacked, um, help them find justice uh, in this world that is so unjust. So, friends, where do we want to... This is a huge topic. Where do we want to start tackling? What, what's our first bite into this? Okay, so uh, before we get any further, um, since we are, we, we often reference back to the Bible, uh, as we should as Christians, um, I want to make a quick note about race in the Bible and the fact that people during biblical times, whether the first century or even earlier, if you're talking about the Old Testament, um, do not understand or view race the same way that we do. Uh, Race is a social construct created like the way that we understand it about 500 or so years ago as a way to um, enforce the superiority of one race over another, which is to say white-skinned Europeans or um, North Americans, uh, in order to take advantage of other people for economic gain. Um, For more information on that, I highly encourage people to listen to the Seeing White podcast um, because they go into a lot more depth about it. But that that understanding of race of like white people versus like black people or whatever um, is a pretty new construct. Um, the way that people did understand groups of people, say in the Bible, is that there are groups in families and tribes and like nations. And it was kind of, you know, we're all coexisting and we're all competing for the same resources. So like, the Israelites were a group, a nation of people. Um, and they're constantly talking about being at odds with like the Moabites or the Samaritans or the Philistines or whomever, because they're all kind of competing for the same resources for land, for food, for trade routes, 
etc. So it was very much like, oh, yes, you are either part of our group or you're not part of our group. Um, but that wasn't based on like appearances. It was based off of what group do you hold a- allegiance to? So I, th- I think I want to make make sure I'm I'm hearing clearly the distinction you're making, Sarah, because I think this is a really important one um, to lay the groundwork for the conversation. That <clears throat> from time immemorial, human beings have been putting each other in different boxes. That seems to be a thing we do, and for a lot of uh, human history prior to the last fifteen hundred years. There was there there didn't need to be like a scientific undergirding for it. it was just well you know my group of people we speak our language or we have our customs we do our thing and of course we're more interested in protecting our interests because they're our group so we could fight with another nation or we could see yeah, those those people speak differently we'll call them barbarians and we're the Greek speaking you know educated people or whatever but there wasn't uh. Uh, an attempt to make it a scientific there are some people groups that are objectively inferior or superior to others because of uh their their biology is that is that what i'm hearing correct yes um like what what set the israelites apart was that they were considered like they considered themselves god's people and um they had all of the laws that god gave moses and the law and laws were the way that people would recognize that they were jews that oh, this is the group of people who have like separate pots for dairy and for meat because those two things aren't supposed to touch. Like, that's weird. But that's how like non-Jewish people would like realize that, oh, they're the Jews. Like they have all of these, like these customs that they follow and they're different than the customs we follow. So the the idea of race being about 500 years old as like this other kind of category um, goes back, as you were sort of saying, to the idea that as empires and, and um, great powers in Europe were sort of looking to expand, um, they were looking for a way to how can we justify going to other newly discovered lands, newly discovered to them, right? Like Africa, like Asia, like the Americas. What would allow us to take what they have and be okay with it? What what would be a reason that that would be okay instead of having to treat other people we discover as made in the image of God? Oh, well, so you end up with Henry the Navigator of uh, Portugal commissioning a a work that basically becomes the beginning of sort of a, a... a scientific veneer for for race. That is, there's these different groups of people who are not just different by culture or language or whatever, but are like, there's somehow a biological um, ranking of who's superior and inferior. And what do you know, that uh, that supposedly scientific study uh, ends up saying that uh, people from Europe are the most advanced and everybody else is least advanced, all the way down to things like who has the biggest cranium size and which groups have the largest brains. I mean, all that kind of stuff becomes the uh, the made-up science that undergirds this idea. There are some groups that it's not just that you're different from me, but I, I convince myself that my group is objectively superior to yours and therefore it's right for me to rule over you or to have power over you or to boss you around that kind of thing is that, is that the, the leap we're talking about yeah okay so if if that's going on then yeah when when we read passages from the bible they're not operating with that the last 500 years worth of baggage that you and I bring to it. And maybe if we can acknowledge there have been a lot of junk science in the last 500 years that 
Paul didn't have to deal with when he wrote. That may explain part of why the New Testament takes the shape it does, that like it doesn't address issues that are hot buttons for us in quite the same way, because honestly, Paul wasn't saddled with the same kind of garbage science that we've had to deal with uh, combating for the last five centuries. Yes. And along with that, you know, as, as you called it, garbage science, that wasn't really science. Um, we also run into during the, the, those same 500 years, the church wasn't exactly helping. That <laughs> the, church, the church as a whole was doing kind of really terrible things alongside the garbage science. So, you know, there was popes saying that, yeah, if you discover a new land and it has native people who are not Christians, it's your job to go in there and to convert them by force. And and, that, and it wasn't good conversions. Like, right, it, right, right. It's at the end of a sword, right? Yeah. It was native populations being like treated horribly, given things intentionally with diseases on them so that large portions of their population would be wiped out by disease instead of war. It was people being held captive, enslaved, and being given the Bible with portions of the Bible not included so that they wouldn't get any ideas about liberation theology. It was really terrible theology going on as well. And it sounds like too, a part of that was this notion that got passed around, uh, eventually came to be called like the, the doctrine of discovery. Basically that if you came from Christendom, from Europe, you had not only the right, but it was your God given. I mean, we use the word manifest destiny in American history, that it was, it was God's destiny for you to take what was there rather than mm-hmm. wait a second. There are other people who are living here. Can we find ways to be neighbors with them? Um, but no, it was our, not only our God-given right, but our duty to take what what, what was in the places where uh, colonizers went, right? Yeah. And and okay, so so we we can't we can't the three of us collapsed the the last five hundred years of history in a in a podcast and eventually get around to Jesus too. But like all that's in the background, and on top of that, as you said, uh, a part of the the last four hundred years in uh, American history is. Um, African slavery that was a part of our history as well, that now there are lasting imprints on the way people relate to each other. So that like Dr. King could say famously that 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in America um, and still is um, because for hundreds of years, there was this officially taught uh like like indoctrination that that not only were were different racial groups some some uh objectively uh, superior and some inferior but also um that questioning the order of things was against god's will too right the, a part of maybe christian theology we have to to wrestle with is there have been times in our history where um our, our appreciation of, say, Romans 13 about obey the governing authorities has become co-opted into whatever the system is, it must be the way God wanted it to be, and therefore questioning the system, changing the system, reforming the system, or saying things like slavery is wrong, that's questioning the way God has set things up. And church folk have been uh, quick to find Bible verses to support the way things were rather than allowing the Bible to help them question wait a second, is this the way things are supposed to be? Yep. 
Well, an example that comes to mind is um, uh, in in the the centuries in which slavery was practiced in the United States, um, you find a lot of preachers uh, talk about. Um, uh, coming off the Noah story about the the three sons of Noah and that these become the roots for the different races and that therefore uh, some races are subservient to others because of that story. And like, it seems significant to me that throughout the first 1500 years of Christian history, that that's not an argument anybody makes. Um, and um, through uh, most of uh, Jewish scholarship, that's not how that passage gets read, but when it becomes convenient for reinforcing a system of slavery, all of a sudden we're all, oh yeah, it's about Genesis 11. It's totally, or it's a Genesis 9. It's all about that. This is a really important passage when no, most of the Bible doesn't even, doesn't even register uh, the story about Noah's sons, much less treat it as uh, the forever and ever there should be uh, these separate races and some are superior and some are inferior, but we have this way of having our agendas and then looking for Bible verses to back it up rather than starting with the scriptures and saying, where will this lead me? Even if it makes me uncomfortable or challenge the way I'm doing things. That's, that's to be honest, probably part of why in American history for so long, not only were there pockets, not more than pockets, big whole, whole, whole chunks of, of our nation who used their Christian faith as a way not only of reinforcing that it was okay to own people, but even after slavery had ended in uh, the end of the Civil War, were convinced that using their Christian faith made it okay to lynch people who they thought were, you know, stepping out of line and uh, people who who, uh, were aspiring too highly or, you know, dared to talk to a white person in public or um, were just the easiest person to accuse when, when something bad happened. And how many times where lynchings happened, it was folks who were wearing their Sunday best because they had just come from church service and then were going to the public lynching, smiling and taking pictures and having postcards made with bodies dangling in the distance, all convinced they were doing God's work to get rid of those troublemakers who were stepping out of line. That's a that's a big piece of our history that we aren't comfortable talking about. It, yeah, because it's one of those things that uh, it, it feels like it was a different time right? Like we don't Mm -hmm. have public lynchings anymore. But if you look at the grand scheme of history, that wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. There are people still alive today who remember that. Um, And yes, we don't have public lynchings anymore, but our churches are still pretty segregated. Um, You know, the ELCA, for example, which, you know, Steve and I are both part of, is still like outrageously something like 95, 96% white. Um, And we're also the denomination that uh, Dylan Roof came out of. Like he was a member of an ELCA church. So, and, and just like for folks who don't immediately catch that reference, he was, he was the shooter in the mother Emanuel shooting several years ago. And it was clear in his writings after the, the fact that he saw his job was being motivated as a white person afraid of the rise of other ethnic groups uh, overpowering or outnumbering or replacing. Uh, the, and he was, he, he was both a member of a, of a Lutheran congregation and thought that these things were okay. Now, that doesn't mean that our tradition uh, as, a, as a denomination is advocating white supremacy, but what it does mean is that 
clearly he, he, whatever level of church involvement he had, there wasn't a clear message that that's incompatible with being followers of Jesus. And I think maybe most damning, as I think about this situation right now, uh, where we live in 21st century America, is when we are silent uh, as church folk, especially as pastors and leaders, about how we treat people who are different or uh, people who come from different racial backgrounds. When we're silent about it, it makes it seem like it's okay for white nationalism, white supremacy, uh, that, oh, that must be compatible, because I never heard my preacher say it wasn't okay. And you end up with Dylan Roof's, you know, uh, shooting people in a Mother Emanuel church, um, because nobody has told them that this is not this, this is not acceptable or that's not how followers of Jesus act. Well, in my own denomination, there, I mean, there has been, um, you know, especially in Western Pennsylvania, where we all minister, um, we are very much like the entire ELCA. We're 97% easily white. That's Western Pennsylvania, too. Um, but, you know, we have our own history of, you know, the the Amy and Amy Zion churches breaking off in the late 1700s because there wasn't a place for African-Americans. Uh, you know, Richard Allen, who, you know, I always thought was this, you know, okay, the first black preacher in America in the Methodist movement, um, just doing some reading about him this morning, found out that, like, at the Christmas conference, which established the American movement, or the Methodist movement in America, he wasn't given a right to vote. He was made a preacher, but not given a right to vote because he was African-American. And he started AME, the AME Church, the American, african Methodist Episcopal Church because they wouldn't let them worship at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings in Philly. Um, They made them worship at 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, You know, but even more recently in our history, we had the Central Conference um, here in the United States, which was like the black church within the larger white Methodist church. And I don't remember the exact dates, but that, I think that finally broke apart maybe 50 years ago. It sounds to me like that each of our traditions, and surely it's not just Lutherans and Methodists, that, that all, of our, all of our various Christian traditions uh, are dealing with this problem. Um, and maybe the underlying current I'm hearing is that we have this common, like, if we dig and not, not dig too far at all, we discover, oh, there's this unfortunate history um, uh, of, of treating people of different racial backgrounds, of, of being not uh, not the same worth or not as important or negligible as, as not, not seeing faces. But because we aren't willing to tell those stories or to look there, we treat it like it's not a problem. And then we wonder why, why how come people of different ethnicities don't automatically come beating down the door? We say everybody's welcome at our church, but my goodness, well, it's guys for 400 years. We, we said Jesus loves everybody, but you got to you know your group can't, can't come except at this time in a separate building and you can't touch us. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe there's baggage too that we brought and assumed are essential to Christianity that are really just essential to one strand or one part of the tradition. I mean, like uh, maybe two part of our, part of the problem is if we assume being Christian means that you sing hymns played on an organ written in the 1700s, that brings a whole lot of baggage with it too. Well, and wait for most of Christian history, they didn't have organs and they didn't necessarily sing in English. Um, But man, sometimes that's what our assumption is that, Oh, to, to be a Christian uh, automatically brings along these trappings that are really more, Oh no, that's really like, you know, uh, 16th century European uh, baggage, and that that's a part of Christianity, but it's not the only way to be Christian. Sometimes we aren't willing to, to make that leap too. And then 
we tell folks, well, you're welcome as long as you would like to do things the way we do them. Well, I mean, that, that, that's, that's sort of like saying you don't really belong unless you do things the way we want you to. So how can we make the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday the, a less segregated hour? We're never going to not make it a segregated hour. Um, but how do we make it a less segregated hour? Maybe I could suggest that, like, that's an, a, a, a hopeful outcome of a deeper, like, mission. That maybe, maybe it's before it's just, like, reducing it to numbers of how can we get different complexions and more people in our churches on Sundays. Because that can still feel like um, it's really about me as white person wanting to, to mm-hmm. pat myself on the back for, isn't, isn't it nice? How, what a, what a delightful diversity of faces we've got. I must be doing a good job. It's easy for that to become self-congratulatory. Um, but instead to treat it like where are there places where all of us are knowingly and unknowingly keeping those old systems, those structures that treats, uh, treat people differently, um, based on their race. Wh- where are we still participating that in that? Where are we still, um, by silence, allowing those things to continue to fester and um, not dismantling them. And maybe maybe that's a piece of it. Like when, when I think about um, what Dr. King wrote in the letter from Birmingham jail, um, that's not a, that wasn't a letter written to the Ku Klux Klan um, uh, or the Sons of the Confederacy. That was a letter written to um, other moderate Christian preachers who were telling uh, Dr. King, that he was just causing too much trouble by insisting that, uh, you know, segregation be ended or that the the, um, the practices of the day weren't acceptable. And, and they were telling him, just, just don't speak up about it. Things will get better on their own. And it, to me, it seems like an important piece of, of taking Dr. King's letter seriously is um, anytime we're silent on things, it sends the message that things are okay, rather than sometimes we're going to have to call out, nope, this, this, this moment, this, this was not an okay thing to say, or this was not an okay way for us to act, or this is not an okay policy. And when we're quiet on things, we end up with Dylan Roofs, who grow up in our congregation mm-hmm. and go, well, nobody, nobody ever preached a sermon to me telling me that it wasn't okay to be white supremacist and to call myself a Christian at the same time. And this is a moment where we need to say things like, no, that's not that's not compatible with following Jesus. It never was, um, but we've been quiet about things for long enough that maybe folks thought it was okay. And how do you have those conversations? Because we mentioned earlier, like in the area in which we all serve, you know, it's predominantly white, and so we often think, well, there's no race issues here because you know there's no black people to have race issues with. Um, how do we have those conversations? Um, with folks that don't see race as an issue because of the lack of diversity in our area? Uh, For me, it's occasionally being okay with being uncomfortable, like that I as a white person being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. Um, because I feel like there's just so much of this where people don't stop to think about the perspective of the other person that like... Well, let's ask the question of why is this part of the country mostly white? Um, I grew up in Iowa, which is mostly white. It's mostly white because as a way to get away from the whole, is this going to be a free or a slave state? Iowa just said no black people. It's going to be illegal for black people to come into our state. That's how we're going to get away from the whole free versus slave state problem. And so it was a long time before 
people of color could come into the state of Iowa. That is why Iowa is mostly white. That is like, and I don't know if that, why, I don't know exactly why Western Pennsylvania is mostly white, but it's probably because of really racist things. For example, uh, even though Pennsylvania was a union state in the civil war, there are a lot of Confederate flags just freely flying all over the place. Do you think that a black family is going to move in next door if they are looking to buy a house and they see that all of their neighbors have Confederate flags? No. That's but great. people That's around here, if you ask, if you ask people, why are you flying the Confederate flag? They're going to be all like, oh, this is the sign of rebel. This is the sign of blah, blah, blah. And they are completely ignoring all of this history that the Confederate flag holds that people of color are going to know and to recognize and think that's not what I see when I look at that symbol. I don't see a rebel symbol. I see a symbol of hatred of of racism of death and i think as a white person i need to be okay with having those conversations of people of like hey do you do you know what this means when you when you fly this flag because i don't think it means what you think it means and you can't just erase all of this history because you're uncomfortable with it and that's not what you mean but it is what you're meaning as somebody born and bred in Western Pennsylvania, and I think the only one out of this group that's lived here all my life, yeah, the the Klan is alive and active in Western PA. They just aren't as willing to admit it because we were a Union state, um, and so we're we're Northerners, we're Yankees. We shouldn't admit to that, um, but it's here, you know. And those flags stand for more than just rebel, like you said, Sarah. And so so one of the difficulties maybe then that falls to us as church leaders who who live and operate in the midst of this environment, too, is like it, it seems to me like we, we have to be willing to decide where are we willing to put ourselves on the line and risk that it will upset somebody to say something uh, like, hey, that Confederate flag is not acceptable to display here. <laughs> I mean, not, not like it's happening in our in our in my church building or anything like that. Um, but like being willing to pull up the thread where, where we see or hear things that like reveal a certain layer or level of, um, racial prejudice. Um, and, and maybe this is also what worth recognizing. I, I think an important piece of what makes racism, racism, isn't just recognizing the difference between people, but it's the way that's paired with power into create systems where, um, some have access and others don't. I mean, like like Sarah said at the very, very beginning, from the beginning of, of human history, we've been putting each other in boxes and saying, you know, your hair is different color, you're different, or our language is different, we're a different tribe. We've been doing that. But when you end up with systems where one group is allowed to use those differences for the sake of power, to say, for example, to a Richard Allen, you can be a preacher, but you can't vote because we decided. Um, mm-hmm. That's not just distinguishing between race, but it's now pairing it with power. Um, that that's that's something we need to call out in a, in our traditions, in our in the present moment, as well as um, in that that sort of like just wherever we see it around us. And and maybe it means us owning the parts of our own histories as church folk that we've been complicit in it. 
to me, it seems like a, a, a place of analogy that would be helpful for me in, as, a, as a Lutheran is to look at the way in um, 20th century history, German Lutherans fell on different sides of the rise of the Third Reich and the Nazi party. And you had some who were clear resistors and said, nope, this is not acceptable. We can't be a part of this movement. And others who uh, were complicit or silent about it. And on the other side of that event, we can look back and go, nope, we should have all been opposed to the Nazis. We need to confess where we were silent, where we com- where we were complicit, where we allowed those things to happen and to draw inspiration from the folks who stood against it and say maybe the same thing could be true in our own American history. There have been things that have been done with, with the stamp of the church's approval that Jesus wants no part of um, and that it's, it, we need to be able to repent of that, to name it and to say we can't continue to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I think, too, that means we need to be able to acknowledge that it is possible to be both a nice person and also to be complicit in racism at the same time. And that maybe that's a thing that we aren't comfortable acknowledging either. But this is probably like dismantling racism 101 stuff here. Like we tend to assume that, oh, racist, that refers to somebody who wears a white hood and is a part of the KKK. And because I'm not that, therefore, I can't be racist as opposed to, wait a second, I can be a follower of Jesus who's really doing my best to follow Jesus and at the same time can have these huge blind spots to not recognize the way this or that or this other part of my life um, are complicit in racism and to say what I'm what I'm looking for is not like the um, absolute is good and evil piles of people, but like I'm both at the same time. There may be parts of me that are striving to be faithful and good and follow Jesus and also parts of me that are stuck participating in racism and to acknowledge that um, rather than to say, well, because I'm not wearing a white hood and part of the KKK, I must be just fine. We only have to speak to people who are wearing white hoods. No, it's for all of us. And we are both at the same time. That to me feels very Lutheran that we're Simul used to set peccators, saint and sinner, justified and sinner at the same time. That means it's also possible to say, I'm trying, I'm striving to uh, be freed from the, the, the shackles of racism in my own uh, way of seeing things. And at the same time, I'm still complicit in it. So did we do it? Did we solve it? <laughs> did we solve it, huh? I, I, I think not. And probably... Pro- probably we should say as, as like a closing disclaimer, we are under no uh, illusion that just having a half an hour conversation solves it for any of us or for the context where we live. Um, and we will have failed if we let this be the last time that mm-hmm. the conversation happens, not necessarily among the three of us too, but like in our, in our everyday ordinary lives with folks, we will have failed if we uh, have just been, well, we talked about it once for half an hour, problem solved. Should we leave some folks with some resources? I know we mentioned the um, the podcast there. What was the name of that again? Um, so it's so this is a tricky thing. I think the podcast itself is called uh, Scenes on the Radio and Scenes as in like S C E N E. But then it's like a whole season of that podcast. It's called Seeing White. Um, mm-hmm. So I think if you Google Seeing White podcast, I think you should be able to find it. Um, but I know I found that tremendously helpful. We did a couple of workshops in our synod recently about, um, racism in the church. And that was one of the resources. And I, I loved it. It was a, it's a good, good podcast. 
I would add to the list of resources that are good entry points for conversation, uh, Jamar Tisby's uh, The Color of Compromise, which looks at American church history through the lens of uh, the way uh, Christianity in American history has been a part of, complicit in, and then ways it, it is uh, rejected racism in different moments or where we failed as well. Uh, Tisby is T-I-S-B-Y. Uh, James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree was a really helpful one that looks again at how uh, the the uh, American phenomenon of lynching uh, resonates with the experience of the, the cross and what that means. And maybe too, the works of um, Ibram Kendi, his aunt, How to Be an Anti-Racist and A Stamp from the Beginning, which takes a look at the history of racism uh, as as sort of this this phenomenon that's got 500 years of history to it, too, are, are ones I would add. How about you, Erica? I would add um, White Fragility, which is a book the three of us have read together along with some other colleagues um, by Robin DiAngelo. At, um, the subtitle to it is Why Is It So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism? Um, really, for, for me, an eye-opening book um, about what we've talked about, about, you know, you can be nice and also have racist tendencies. Like, it's not just you know, the white hooded Ku Klux Klan that are racist. Um, and another one just to help that helped me recently, um, maybe not so much racism, but just um, generally speaking, the, the, the disinherited, you know, is, I can't think of a better word because that's part of the title, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Oh, um, that's a great one. You know, and, and just looking at folks um, who are different from me. Um, either by race or by social class or economic class. Um, that was a really eye-opening book as well. And especially in how he brings Jesus into that and Jesus's ministry to those who are disinherited. So we've all got a reading list um, and further conversation. Um, maybe we should say too, because we realize that there's a lot of cans of worms that may have been opened up in this conversation if, if, if you're in a position to give feedback, comments, questions to any of the, the three of us, uh, please feel free. We'll, we invite your comments, your questions or whatever, so that uh, whether that's conversation for another episode or one-on-one, um, that this can be uh, as wide and ongoing a dialogue as possible. So uh, we'll return to other angles on justice and doing justice next time. Uh, join us next time on uh, Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye.